Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. John Gruden and Eric Hippel, and our topic, as you said, is overcoming suicide and depression. Dr. John Gruden is the Rachel Upjohn Professor of Psychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences, Research Professor, Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience Institute, and Executive Director of the University of Michigan Depression Center. Our guest, Eric Hippel, is a former quarterback of the Detroit Lions, outreach representative for the University of Michigan Depression Center, and author with Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi of Real Men Do Cry, a quarterback's inspiring story of tackling depression and surviving suicide loss. Welcome to the show, John and Eric. It is very nice to be here. Thank you. This is John. Hi, John. And hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Good. Good. Uh, Well, let's start out a little bit about how you two know each other. And, And, Eric, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your story and how you met up with uh, Dr. Greerden. First, with my football background, when I first met Dr. Greeden, I called him Gruden, too, because the coach goes down in Tampa, but it's actually Dr. Greeden. Oh, <laughs> Greeden, right. Sorry, okay. that's right. That's right. I, I, made, I made the same mistake a long time. I can't call him coach. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, no, actually, it was um, in the aftermath of my son's suicide <clears throat> um, that uh, I started going through um, some problems myself, not only grief, but um, other problems that probably had existed before that I just didn't know anything about. And I ran into John at a uh, is at a, uh, um, a foundation function, and he handed me his card, and <clears throat> I didn't think much of it at the time. I kind of tucked it away, and, and you know, as a resource, you know, for down the down the future. And then I got a phone call from um, his office. Um, they had a lunch and learn, which is where the um, faculty will actually put on a presentation on, um, and this case is on depression, and you can ask questions. And so I went to that. And just the general public can come and do that, right, John? Um, yeah, this is, it was the general public, but I think it was also by invitation because it was a pretty small group to, to start with. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, those who have showed interest in, in what's going on. So I went to that. But here's the thing that really changed my life anyway, was the fact that now I'm listening um, to, uh, to doctors and professors and faculty that are talking about a specific illness that I knew nothing about. And it was that that really pulled me forward and said, wait a minute, you mean they have a name for this thing? And, and it was with that that it kind of propelled me into a getting treatment and to getting help and also recognizing in the past those issues that I dealt growing up that actually had a name to it. And then looking into our family history a little bit more, finding out there were some issues there. And then, and then I was able to really look back at Jeff's um, you know, previous. And this was eight years ago? That's correct, yeah. He just shot himself. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. He died uh, April 9th, uh, year 2000. And so looking back on that, and I was able to go back and look at his actions prior to his taking his life and, and every sign and symptom that, the, uh, that was brought out in that um, uh, little lunch and learn was there. And I just Let went, me oh ask uh, John a question. Sure. John, mm-hmm. how did you decide, were you the one that started this lunch and learn? I know you developed and raised money for this huge center, right, at the University of Michigan? Yes, uh, thank you. I mean, it's a, it's basically an initiative that is driven by the fact that depression all by itself is, according to all of these studies that Eric's referring to, uh, 
the largest producer of burden and disability of all of the illnesses in the world. And we just aren't doing enough to address this. Uh, and, and as he points out, uh, some of the people... I think, did we just lose John? No. Um, I lost. Are you there? Uh, hello? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, anyway... We lost, uh, we lost you for a minute, I think. Oh, we did. Oh, mm-hmm. Gee. <laughs> All right. It's on a speakerphone. So I hope my connection isn't bad. But uh, so let me just try and say that again. Then I mean, what what we have believed in. I mean, we set up the University of Michigan Depression Center as a center of excellence, just along the same lines that cancer has gone after uh, an attack by bringing people together from different disciplines. And one of the major strategies is how do we educate citizens, community, uh, teachers, uh, ministers, rabbis, how do we essentially get everybody invested in all of this? So the lunch and learn meeting that Eric is referring to really was uh, one of those functions. We followed it with uh, a mini medical school, as we called it, which was a six-week evening type of course, and Eric also attended that. So he's learned a fair amount. So, you know, this is such an amazing thing because that's one of the things we've been trying to do with the foundation is bring the information that professionals have to the public. Huh? Yeah. Everybody's here. Good. John, uh, I wanted to ask you when we went to break, you were talking a little bit about this University of Michigan Depression Center. And because Heidi and I wrote the book with Eric, Real Men Do Cry, we were able to come. Unfortunately, you weren't there. But we were able to go see the Depression Center. It is an amazing facility that you have done. It's incredible. Just to add to that, and I agree with that, you feel good when you walk in, and I know that's by design. There's a lot of windows and light and plants, and you feel better just by being in the facility. Uh, thank you. That was in, really part of the design. I mean, uh, when I was proposing this um, to the University of Michigan leaders, the executive officers, I found myself saying that uh, we wanted a facility that was the antithesis of depression, and everybody would smile. But the, arch- the architects took it very seriously, and they worked with us to try to do something that was healing and felt warm and in touch with nature. And uh, there are biological effects for light, so we truly emphasized that. And, uh, and then we made open spaces and sort of an area where we could all gather and do other kinds of things as well, so it... Uh, it wasn't a somber institutional feel, but thank you for the compliment. Now, I know that our audience, you know, only a small number of the people that listen to us are ever going to be able to go to the University of Michigan Depression Center, and they're certainly um, not going to have the chance to do the lunch and learn and all that kind of thing. But I want to say you have a phenomenal website. And you can go on the University of Michigan website, and you can take an incredible depression test on there, and also, uh, well, John, do you want to talk about the site a little bit? Well, the site is basically trying to address some um, viewpoints that I said earlier, which is the more that everybody can learn about depression and bipolar disorder, manic depression, the better off we'll all be, because these disorders are treatable. The depression center was driven by kind of five viewpoints, and I'll see if I can say them rapidly. The first is that these actually are very prevalent, they're very common, and they start early, much earlier than what any of us would like to believe. And ages of onset tend to be between 15 and 24. Yeah, because, Eric, your son was, what, 15 or younger when you noticed? That's correct, yes. Mm -hmm. And we don't find them in 
those early ages because we call it other things. Oh, it's the marijuana use, or they're just going off to college, or other kinds of things. We we tend to overlook what is there, and Eric actually has described that to many of his audiences. Uh, so one of the challenges is what do we do to find these things earlier? Two is we need better treatments. We've got some good ones, but we need better ones, and so a lot of this is involving research. Three is that we need to really be working on keeping people well and preventing recurrences when we get them better, uh, working with families and, and everything, because recurrences are part of all of this. These episodes come and go, and in order to do all of those, we needed to overcome stigma. And then finally, uh, what you just said, uh, the realization is is that one center doesn't solve much. So we're working on trying to establish a national network of depression centers analogous to what's being done, for example, with cancer, what has been done, and with cardiovascular or heart centers. So there are different centers that people will be able to go to eventually. But right now, they can go to your website, right, and actually take a test. Yes, and this online. And this is basically a confidential screening assessment to try to uh, determine uh, whether or not they have symptoms. And, uh, and these are valuable. This is another way for people to learn about what's going on. Uh, Eric, at the beginning, and you may want to just elaborate on this, at the beginning of the show you said something about it had a name. <laughs> and I can remember when you and I talked about all of this and you just assumed that these were parts of living and responding to events, but uh, when something is persistent and, and there's pervasive sadness and gloom and sleep disturbances and appetite changes and loss of pleasure and those things, uh, it does not only just have a name, it's a disorder. That can be treated. And one thing I like about the checklist, for those of you that are listening, it's a nine-symptom checklist for depression, so it doesn't take that long to complete. You can complete it fairly quickly and then... It's, it gives you a score, and you can see if you need to get further help or need to talk to somebody. Now, one of the issues that our audience has, John, frankly, is what? how do they decide between uh, grief and depression? Mm-hmm. It's a very important question, and it doesn't have an easy answer for those of us in the field. Uh, the symptoms and the feelings are uh, rather remarkably close together. And, I mean, if someone loses, as you began the show, you talked about 9-11, and um, we all know some people, I suspect, who have either lost someone or, or literally know someone who's lost someone and they've watched or felt it. What happens is those are really painful. The, if, the issue with depression is that those same mechanisms are kicked in, but they're sometimes not doing it just in response to an event, and they don't go away, and they keep coming, and uh, over time and over a lifetime, they get worse, uh, and we know very definitively now that they're linked to stress, to substance use that's inappropriate, uh, genetics are part of this, and there are real changes that are going on in the brain. Uh, so grief turns out to probably be one of the major precipitants for those who have underlying depression, that if someone has a loss, it's often very characteristically uh, a new precipitant for setting off another episode of depression. So for those who have had depression in the past, having a, a, a death in the family or something equivalent uh, that really produces a, an expected grief reaction is, is a warning sign. I mean, oh, oh, this is something we need to pay attention to. 
Mm-hmm. And, and looking at that past history, well, now we've got a, another problem that comes up, and I, and I think that it, it certainly came up for Eric too. Um, what what caused our child or our loved one to kill themselves? You know, it, was it connected with depression? Is it an illness? You know, how how do we deal with that? Does depression really kill people? I mean, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, and then I'd really like Eric to join in because mm-hmm. he's. I've listened to him and I've worked with him and talking to audiences and I think sometimes just the personal experiences have um, even more pointed impact. Um, those yeah, Eric, why don't you go ahead and tell us about what you saw in Jeff before and, uh, and, and maybe we can comment on that for that audience mm-hmm. out there who's, who's you know, so concerned mm-hmm. about the suicide. Yeah, and who's worried about maybe their children yeah. or right. their loved ones. Okay. Well, I, I think um, I want to um, address also when you talk about grief and how it mimics um, depression and sometimes can precipitate a depressive uh, episode. But there are also, and this also involves uh, Heidi, you, and Gloria, is the fact there are proper ways to grieve as well. And if we tie that up and hold that inside and we don't grieve properly, that can string along for a period of time. But if we grieve properly and, um, and it's healthy to do so, then we should, at some point in time, start rising above that. And if it doesn't, then it per, per, you know, precipitates for a long period of time, then it might be something else that we're talking about. In the case of um, my son, um, you know, he had every classic symptom, which you know, includes you know, sadness, uh, uh, not feeling well. A lot of times uh, somatic pains will be more overpowering than, than the idea, well, I'm just sad. It's the stomach aches and the headaches and not feeling well. Um, they can even mimic like flu-like symptoms and stuff in, in, in teenagers, and and then um, sometimes there's withdrawal. Um, it affects uh, sleep patterns. It affects uh, your appetite, your eating uh, habits, and so all those things were were prevalent within Jeff. But you know, I, you know, growing up, and this is why I think it was really important um, to finally have a name to something, was because that was kind of normal. Well, you know, you go through these things and you just kind of buck up and you go forward and you know you you get past them, but. Um, that doesn't happen all the time. And, well, and sometimes so, people, Eric, don't, they don't connect physical symptoms with signs of depression. You think, that, well, maybe, you know, your son does just have a stomach ache or a headache, and that's just normal. That's true. And, in fact, and this, this comes into where primary care um, um, uh, knowledge and uh, learning and, and all that kind of plays a part into it. I think the person who goes to their primary care physician, if they have the knowledge a lot of the scholars that we're talking about and they'll be able to educate themselves on what these illnesses are, then they can write, ask the right questions and they'll get directed in the right way at least. But a lot of times it, uh, just going to your, your doctor and saying, I don't feel good, it doesn't give that doctor a whole lot of room to work with as well. Take your temperature, you don't have this, you know, maybe it's the flu. That's all we can really tell you. And just you know, to jump in on that one, yeah, uh, that's a very important point for your audience because the vast majority of people, when they're not feeling well, don't go see psychiatrists or psychologists or even mental health social workers. They go see their obstetrician, their primary care family medicine doctor, their internist, uh, um, pediatricians uh, get involved when you have younger age uh, ranges. And what happens is that they present their symptoms. The, the primary care doctors are actually very excellent and do good jobs if somebody walks in and ever would say, you know, I'm depressed. I'm just not enjoying things anymore. I'm sad. I cry. But in our society, people don't present that way. They go in and they talk about the headaches and the backaches and the fact that uh, that uh, they're just fatigued and 
other kinds of things get focused upon. And that's why it's very important, again, for people to understand that depression actually does present lots of times with physical symptoms, just as Jeff experienced. We have a guest um, uh, call in from Anna. Are you there, Anna? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great show. I'm glad a friend told me to, to get it. Well, do you uh, have a question for Eric have, or Dr. Graydon? Um, for either one of them, probably Dr. Graydon. My husband was laid off last year. He was in middle management, and they did a massive layoff because of the economy. He spent a lot of time in the beginning looking for a job, and then it gradually got less and less. Now he just sits around the house. Once in a while he'll do something, but basically he just sits there. He makes remarks um, like, if you came home from work and I wasn't here, you wouldn't even miss me. Um, he talks about how he feels worthless. I've encouraged him to try to talk to somebody or get some help. He absolutely won't do it. I, I, I hope I can get him to look at your website, maybe even take the test, but the way he's been, I doubt it. Do you have any suggestions on how I can get him to realize that he needs help or maybe I'm overreaching? I, I don't quite know what to do. I don't think you're overreaching, and let's just all do this collectively because you've also got uh, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi, and Eric has also walked through this from the aspect of encouraging people. So first of all, what you say uh, does sound as if it's a reasonable concern. You are noticing things that are not good. I mean, there's withdrawal, there's uh, some of the comments, and I would really uh, encourage you to persist with your attempts. It may mean that you have to change strategies a little bit. Uh, uh, this isn't good. I'm going to go with you. We are going to go do this. And uh, I've actually um, just, you know, I know where you're at, but I think uh, we've got to all do things to be in this as a family. If you have children, they may actually be noticing the same things. And uh, however you do it, you don't want to give up on the framework of saying, oh, well, he's resisting, therefore there's nothing I can do. Eric, do you want to join in? Yeah, I, I would say from a, from a man's standpoint of view, this is where the stigma comes. So, in you know, the stoicism as far as, you know, somebody standing up and saying, no, um, it's my job to take care of the family, it's my job to do this, and I feel like a failure. When, in, in essence, you know, that's the stigma that's getting in the way and saying, no, this is something that we can talk about together as a family. It's something we can talk and get past this and get through it. You know, so there there can be light at the end of the tunnel. I hate to use that as a cliche thing, but that really you need to propel some hope into him that things will be better. And it's not so much matter financially. That's not why you're married to him, and that's not why um, you love him. You know, you love him for him. And not well, we've been through that. He kind of comes from the old school. Yeah. So that men do, don't cry and they don't show weakness. Well, that's what's so great about the book, uh, Real Men Do Cry, that Eric's just uh, told his oh, life story in. And I think it's so powerful to have a guy, and uh, Dr. Graydon, too, to have men involved with this because uh, I think a lot of times it's the women out there that are trying to get these guys in. And, and I those, want to add that I love the idea of the collaboration. Let's do this as a family that Dr. Graydon talked mm -hmm. about. However, if he is absolutely 100% resistant, I think I, as his spouse, would go in myself and talk to somebody because you don't want to sit back too passively and then 
God forbid something happens. I mean, I don't know the situation completely, but I might get my own help and get my own support. And I would encourage you to do that. And also, I believe that it's important to expose these things and to tell close family members and to tell your religious uh, leader or whatever and not keep these things a secret because it's, it's a lot of... A lot of stress to be, have to hold on to this kind of information, and you let them know that you know I will be telling our kids, I will be telling people because I can't keep this myself. I have to have other people so that they know that it's you know that you don't feel like it's a hidden secret or something. More than likely, you also may have a family doctor, a primary care doctor, and uh, that's another avenue for support. They do understand, and if you presented the same brief story that you just gave to us uh, very nicely, I think that they would quickly uh, grasp that maybe something is necessary and they can sometimes have strategies for doing things in a routine medical evaluation. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. May I ask a question? Is, is he self-medicating as well? Uh, um, well, he's doing some drinking, but not excessive. Okay. I, you know, I've never seen him out of control, but okay. he's drinking a little more than he used to. Okay. Well, These, by the way, are situations, just to make an observation, that there are an awful lot of people, unfortunately, who are going through this uh, with job losses and, mm-hmm. and reductions increasing. Uh, just think about the stresses that people face in life. I mean, deaths in the family, divorces, and job losses are among the most severe. And we have a lot of people experiencing this right now. Absolutely. Well, Anna, thank you so much for calling in, and maybe you can get him to listen to the show. I'll do my best. Thank you so much for the help. And uh, feel free to blog in on the Greek blog. It's just that Mm -hmm. in addition to, like, the book that uh, Gloria and Heidi and Eric uh, worked on together, uh, written with Eric as his primary story, uh, there are several PBS documentaries that have just been produced. One of them is called Men Get Depression. And Eric has actually got some sequences in there that describe his own struggles and uh, the issues that he just talked about, about being a male and having to, to do this. And, and how would our listeners get a hold of that? I think you'd probably have to go chasing to your public broadcasting channel, PBS okay. channel in your area, and see whether they could uh, uh, tell you how to get at it. But it was, Maybe we uh, can get a link for that on our show, Heidi, yeah. and yeah. on the grief blog. Let's See if we can do that. Yeah, we should leave our spring. Yeah. And the other one was Out of the Shadows, which had also some similar type of thing. They both were PBS productions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, I know I know one was produced by State of the Art, Inc., and I think you can contact them um, for access. So I, that would be, what is it, stateoftheart.com, um, I believe it is? Well, we'll check and see. Yeah, we'll we check and see that. But anyway, and we yeah. might have it on there. Well, Anna, thank you so much for calling in, and good luck. And, you know, you've taken a, a huge first step in yep, reaching thank you. out. <laughs> well, and, and having it validated by Dr. Graydon that this is serious. Such a help. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Well, you know, you were talking about seasons, um, Dr. Graydon. You said that, that it only came up for me because you said that uh, it came out in the spring. And I... It's the fall now, and there's some seasonal depression for people, isn't there? Sometimes, absolutely. Especially um, if they're if they have light, if there's light deprivation. Well, uh, first, uh, our brains are wonderful. By the way, I love the metaphor. I mean, the healing heart. We yeah. all live with this, and yet at the same time, we we have worked hard 
and Eric has actually been kind of a spokesperson for just illustrating to people that uh, that there are some things that are broken in our brains when we get really depressed or bipolar. And one of the fascinating things that uh, we've learned in the last several decades is that we need light to really function well, to keep our rhythms going. And for those of us who are vulnerable because we have depression or bipolar, if we travel or if we don't get that light, things get worse. And we call it seasonal affective disorder because a lot of normal people also experience it. But in actuality, if one has some underlying depression and you hit wintertime, that's actually a time of risk for some. They slide back into depression. That's when the suicidal thoughts occur again. And there are ways to treat that. Now, uh, would you do these light lamps work that you can get? Do you recommend those? The light lamp lamps do help. Hello. There are lots of studies to illustrate Hello. that. And uh, simultaneously, are they the sole answer for everyone who has a depression, for example, this coming winter? And the answer is no. That's where the psychotherapy, the counseling, in some cases the medications, uh, these are all of the things that, that really are also beneficial. Uh, incidentally, just as a little side comment, uh, and I mentioned that, well, he just sits around. Uh, there are all kinds of reports now that suggest that exercise actually does things to change the chemistry of the brain and is important for those who do have uh, depression and bipolar. So some regular sequence of exercising should also be thought about. That's, that's what I was going to ask you, John. Okay, so exercise is important. I've heard at least 20 minutes a day of light. Um, what other things? I've heard something about plants. I don't know where the plants fit in other than okay. the natural beauty. <laughs> what plants are you talking about? What is also being talked about now with documented scientific studies is that uh, um, certain types of nutritional things that we once poo-pooed and paid little attention to now are seemingly becoming uh, better established. So the omega-3 story, for example, is being shown to have some mood stabilization effects. Uh, for and omega-3 is, is what, fish? Fish oil. Sir, yeah. That's right. Fish Eric, oil. what did you just say? Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's fish oil, but there's, there's, there's and you can uh, expound on this, John, but there's two different things that you find when you look in the bottle for fish oil, and um, maybe you can explain what you're actually looking for. Well, you can actually go now to the nutritional aspects, but there are the, I mean, to the nutritional stores, and they even sell these, but uh, there are various ratios of omega-3 and omega-6, and uh, and what happens is they stabilize the lipid membranes of, of neurons, of brain cells, and uh, and it appears as if they do have some therapeutic effects because of that. And, uh, and this, none of these, by the way, are substitutes for the treatments that sometimes are necessary. Hello. You just lost me on the show. This is Gloria. <laughs> it sounds like you have gone on to talk about um, uh, yeah, recommendations. We're talking about the things that make people feel better. Like yeah. Right. And, and I was asking when I got cut off, does the light work? Does light? The lights do work. Yeah. And uh, what, they, they work. what would our audience get for that? I mean, well, what kind of lights would you get? Where would they go? Uh, there, first of all, if one just does something like on a web and looks up seasonal affective disorder, you'll find all kinds of of sources. Uh, what is needed is uh, whole spectrum light, and it needs to be of a certain intensity. And right now, most of the ones are just registered in the framework of this. You need like this is too much technicality, but like ten thousand lux 
which is the intensity. And if it's used for for a period of time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, uh, sitting off at a at a small distance, not staring into it. Uh, for example, working on a computer with this in the background. Uh, these actually uh, are effective in helping set biological rhythms and change mood. I also heard smells scents like lavender. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Well, it, people, people. When you say is it true? Unfortunately, <laughs> these are the things that we end up looking at, and people have reported that now. Right. And it's not so far fetched. At one time, I thought all of these were maybe just oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had such things? But when we look at them, we're complex. <laughs> Human beings are complex, and mm-hmm. uh, and we're learning more about us as we go through. That one, however, is not very well studied. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just smelling lavender uh, it might be worth a try. You know, there's so much biological about us. I think that's what we're learning, that we're really run by a lot of biology, too, and that our thoughts affect our biology, but it's a lot of biology, isn't it? It absolutely is. Uh, Eric, when you... I remember you once when you went to the lunch and learn and then to the mini medical school made some comment about about how much you had learned about all of this. <laughs> you want to comment on that? Yeah, and I think that's that's the important piece right now is, you know, one of the things that stops people from from uh, from seeking help is a ignorance because they don't know about it, which is, you know, a common theme. And then B, once they might have heard something about um, the weakness side of uh, depression, or even just the word depression sometimes, just that word sometimes, you know, um, signifies weakness, you know, oh, down, you know, now nobody wants to be around you and everything else. So just those words sometimes will set that stigma up to where I don't want to really be involved in that. And a lot of it is because of lack of knowledge. Or, so or Eric, really... the whole idea of, okay, if I'm depressed, that means I have a mental Ill- illness and that means I'm crazy. That, well, that's yeah, that's kind of a negative stigma as well. Exactly, and um, I, and that's why I, I just think that so much. It's so important for for people to reach out one and try and learn as much as they can about this illness. But also, B, it's also real important for those that are in the field to keep continuing outreach and, and going out and uh, reaching as many people as they can to to suppress that word stigma and 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 uh, put positive connotations on getting help. Talk therapy is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Medications do work, but they sometimes, you know, for rapid stabilization, but sometimes, you know, it's not the best mix to start with. But talk therapy combined with that can help get rid of that perception, can also reframe um, the way that you're thinking to put a positive uh, note on it. And the po- more positive we can be about something, the more we pull forward. And, so and like, the more we change like those brain chemicals. In front of the other, but That's right. I really believe that the, the, the getting rid of that, you know, um, the outreach and education, the more people understand how these things work. I was one of those that didn't understand anything, but after I gained a certain amount of education, it was like, oh, my gosh, we should, we need to share this with everybody. I want to take our call from Neil. Hi, Neil, are you there? Hi, Dr. Gloria. How, hi, Dr. Heidi. How are hi, you guys? Um, I've got a couple questions this morning. Um, first of all, I'm 38 years old. I have bipolar disorder. Um, I was diagnosed about six years ago, although I'm pretty sure I've been suffering it from it for a lot longer time than that. Um, I read once that the statistics are that between 6 and 7% of people in the United States actually suffer from bipolar disorder. Is this something that's an accurate statistic to your knowledge? Uh, this is John, Neil, and uh, first, uh, thanks for asking, uh, because it's a topic that doesn't get enough attention. The figures that are commonly used by National Inst- 
institutes of health and others are probably more in the range of 3%. But uh, what happens now is that all of us are recognizing that there may be milder forms of these. And so some have estimated that it may be as high as what you've mentioned, like up okay. to 6%. Uh, the terms that get used are there's a bipolar 1 or manic, uh, those with real full-fledged manic episodes, and then bipolar 2, those who have highs and depressions, but not necessarily full-fledged manic episodes. And it's those I milder forms that are confusing the statistics. I see. Okay. My, my second question, and this is something that's of great personal interest to me and hopefully also to a lot of other people that are suffering from mental illness, um, I was misdiagnosed in the beginning as having depression because when I went to the doctor, I, I wasn't suffering from a manic episode. I was suffering from a severe depression. Are a lot of people like myself who have bipolar disorder misdiagnosed as having depression? The original onset of symptoms for most people with depression, uh, with bipolar disorder, is clinical depression. Uh, these tend to be mood swings and cycles, as you know, perhaps, because you've gone through it. Um, and, by the way, stay optimistic. There are treatments, and people do well with, with these things. But most of the time, the first episodes that people experience are sadness and, and fairly characteristic symptoms. It's only later sometimes that the mood fluctuations and the highs start to appear, sometimes accompanied by substance abuse, and drinking more and more risk-taking and some of the other things that get uh, better known. Um, and people in those early stages sometimes like those. I was going to say it can be difficult for the families because uh, I know some manic people, I mean, it's a good state to be in. They get a lot done. Right. But Absolutely. these are treatable. And uh, there are the concerns in the past, by the way, about, uh, oh, if I get treatment, I'm not not going to be as creative, I'll lose my imagination, I'll lose my job skills, uh, all of the things that are wonderful about me, that's actually not so. And that can be a risky time, those manic episodes, where we're talking about uh, Suicide Prevention Week, and uh, that is a, a risk. Right, right. Yeah. So what, well, I, uh, Neil, uh, what are you doing? Have, have you uh, been to the University of Michigan Depression Center site? And I would suggest that you do that. And you're I getting help and treatment? I will definitely do that. Um, I had read um, that Eric has a book that's coming out that I'm really excited about reading. Um, the most important thing that I find that I've done in my own treatment is, you know, obviously seeing a, I saw a medical professional. I saw a psychiatrist. I did uh, a lot of counseling to help me deal with the issues, <clears throat> sort of the uh, the chaos that I had left in my life behind me uh, before I got diagnosed, and I'm just trying to educate myself as much as possible so I can, you know, continue to, to be stable. Absolutely. Hey, That's Neil, great. You, well, Eric, do you yeah. have a thought about that? The yeah, education? I do. In, in fact, this uh, not only for Neil, but I, mean, this, uh, I think Neil brings out a really good point, was is the fact that there's a trust factor that has to be established, too. You said you have a, a lot of guilt about, or not so much guilt, but a lot of the things that you left behind, and and uh, so when you go in for the first couple times to get diagnosed, you're kind of afraid to give everything out there because you got that own your own shell that you're trying to break through in itself, and so you're not really maybe uh, always being honest with the uh, practitioner and, and right. telling them everything that's going on, and then finally when you get to the point where you know you can deal with the guilt and, and the things that you left behind and and, and you can honestly face it, 
then that information comes out flows, and I think it's a little bit easier than for the uh, clinician to sit there and work with you rather than you seem to be kind of battle them. That's kind of how I was. The first couple times I went to get diagnosed, it was, well, I don't want to tell everything here because, you know, I don't want them to think this. And um, so I really wasn't quite honest, and it makes it a little harder to diagnose. So yeah, Eric, I, you I, held back, it sounds like, with your own story when you mm-hmm. went in to get counseling. Yeah, and uh, I was told by a couple of people to go and, and uh, that, that to go see somebody, and it was somebody telling me to go see somebody. So when I went, I was afraid the information I would give out would be used against me, mm-hmm. and um, so I really wasn't quite honest a hundred percent of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to uh, um, establish the fact that yes, they've used substances. Some, some, they don't want to bring that out because what they might be labeled as might right. be used, and so not until finally when you in knowledge that actually I said this word knowledge is key that you're actually helping yourself by disclosing that to the clinician so they can help you. And um, I think sometimes that's maybe take one or two times before you actually break that down and get that trust factor there. Well, Neil, thank you so much for calling into the show, and, and good luck on your journey and, and your education, and I'm sure out there helping others too. Thanks, and, Neil. And thank you, Neil. Very much. One of the things that you might also do, it sounds like you like to learn. There is also a very good book an older one now, but it's it stays excellent, written by Kay Redfield Jameson called mm. An Unquiet Mind. Yes. And it's about her story going through bipolar disorder. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Well, thanks thank again, you. Neil. And it's time to close our show. And I want to uh, thank Dr. John Graydon and Eric Hippel for being on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.